The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Lord, we, we gather today in this room and we simply ask you what we just sang in that song. We ask you to accomplish your will. Father, let your will be done. Not our will, Lord, but your will be done in these moments as we gather around your word, as we hear from you, as your Holy Spirit sovereignly works among us. May your will be done for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I teach a middle school literature class, and it's a hobby of mine. I don't have to do it. I enjoy it. I enjoy it for a lot of reasons, and one of the reasons I enjoy teaching particularly a middle school literature class is because I get to go back now as a 42-year-old and read all of the great literature that I did not read when I was a kid. And so it's a big deal. So right now we are reading a book called Treasure Island. And so maybe you've read it before. I mean, this is a classic. And as we're reading it, I'm learning that this book is like the source book for all the things we think about pirates, like the one leg and the, the parrot on the shoulder. I mean, all of that comes from this book called Treasure Island. And this book features a character whose name is Long John Silver. I bet you thought that that was just the best fast food restaurant in LaGrange, didn't you? <laughs> Which I'm really saying that. It is the best fast food restaurant in LaGrange. Care what you say. You can shake your heads all you want. It is the best. And now that they put a new coat of paint all over it, it looks new. <laughs> That's beside the point. But before Long John Silver was a great fast food restaurant, Long John Silver is a character in Treasure Island. And, and, it, and it's fascinating. His character really is because as you read the narrative, the, the, everyone's first impression upon meeting Long John Silver is that he is a great guy. I mean, here is a man who is admired. Everyone who meets him is impressed by how articulate he is. He seems very trustworthy. And so everybody's saying, yes, this guy, Long John Silver, we are going to put our trust in him. He is going to lead the way. And all the while... And we learn the spoiler alert, okay, if you haven't read Treasure Island, close your ears. Spoiler alert, Long John Silver really is the villain. And he's planning a mutiny. And all of that trustworthiness that, that people have in him is, is really just him putting on a show. And underneath all of that, he's really plotting and scheming for his own selfish ends. And and so a character like that in a book, and you could name many other characters just like that from books and movies and shows, but here's the thing. I don't think that you really need to look for a character like that to understand the disconnect that often occurs between 
how we're perceived on the outside and what's really going on on the inside. Because I think if you look closely enough at yourself, you'll see a little bit of Long John Silver, even in you. There's often a disconnect there. This is a truth that we see again and again in the Bible. It's a truth that we often don't want to think about, we don't want to talk about, because we would like to believe that people's best impressions of us are really who we are. But then often in our darkest moments, we, we, when we're really honest with ourselves, we recognize that that's not true, that there's darkness in there, that there's inauthenticity, that there's fakeness. You know, we have this passage in 1 Samuel. We're going to study 1 Samuel later this year. So we'll come to this passage, but it, I'll just reference it today. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord doesn't look at people the way we look at people, the Bible says. We look, we look at outward appearance. And, and to be honest with you, church, what other option do we have? I can't look at you and see what's happening in your heart. I don't know what you're thinking right now. We never have the fullness of that available to us. In some ways, all we have to look at is the outward appearance and the way things are presented to us. What else can we do? This isn't just an out there problem. You know, I was thinking back through my life, and honestly, I could come up with all kinds of examples from my own life of this problem. I remember when I was a teenager living in my rebellion, and I would go see, every year, I would go see my grandmother, my mama, who passed away last year, every year around December 23rd. You know why? Because December 23rd, Barbara, you know, that's our birthday, isn't it? And I knew that I needed to see my grandmother on December 23rd because my mama was going to give me a $20 bill. And as a teenager living in rebellion, a $20 bill could get me pretty good ways. And I would go see my mama on my birthday, and she would say, Casey, I am so glad you came to see me today. And, you know, I would never correct her. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, mama, I really just came for this $20 bill. But why was I really there, right? You see, the outside and how I was perceived was not consistent with the inside and my true motives. And I think when we're honest, we recognize that there's often a disconnect in our lives between perception and reality. And, and, and we have to acknowledge that before we get into what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 6. We have to acknowledge that because the question we have to ask after acknowledging that is what can we do about it? Can we do anything about it? Is this just the hand that I'm dealt? <laughs> do, do I just make peace with this inconsistency and try to ignore it and, and hope that people just keep seeing the outside and don't see some of the things going on inside? Is that the fate that I'm dealt? Or is there hope for change? Is it possible for me to grow to a point where the outside matches the inside. Where the righteousness of my heart is congruent 
with the righteousness of my appearance and my public persona? See, this is the question Jesus is dealing with. The answer to this question starts where we started last week. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and I just want to remind you of how that passage ended. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we, we, we discussed what that means. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then immediately the clue to answering what he means by that is found in all the teachings that come after that. Because right after that, Jesus says, hey, you thought murder was just the outward act of killing another person. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Murder is when you hate someone in your heart. It's when you're angry at someone in your heart. You thought lust was just about adultery, or you thought that's what it was when someone actually has an affair with someone else. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what that commandment's about. It is when you have lust in your heart. What is Jesus doing in these teachings? Jesus is saying true righteousness the kind of righteousness that people experience when they come into a relationship with me is not just outward, it is also inward. So Jesus is teaching this. That's what he's saying. That's the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then at the very end of this section, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says this, you Therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you know, usually we read Matthew 5.48, and that's the verse where we go, well, nobody's perfect. And I just want you to know, church, that I think perfect here is a misleading translation of what Jesus is trying to communicate in this passage. He is not saying that in order to, to get into the kingdom, you, you have to never make mistakes, that you have to be flawless in your morality. That's not what he means. This word perfect is Jesus communicating an idea, and, and the best way I know to describe what he's trying to communicate is the idea of wholeness. The idea that your behavior springs from an internal consistency. When the perception matches the reality. When the outward righteousness matches what Jesus is doing inside in your heart. That is the perfection that Jesus is referring to. That is the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not just a veneer. It's not just out here. It's not an illusion. There is substance behind the perception. And Jesus says, when you come into relationship with me, you begin to look like me. Your heart begins to undergo transformation. There is something that happens that I am doing that can only be done by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit takes the law of God and begins writing it on our hearts so that our very motives are changed. I'm not just doing the right thing, but I'm beginning to see that I can do the right things for the right reasons for the glory of God, and not just the selfishness that has prevailed in my life for so long. This is only in and through Jesus, church. Listen to me. If you hear anything today, please hear this. 
It is a vain life to try to attempt to become what Jesus is describing apart from who Jesus is and faith and trust in him. Jesus is the perfect, congruent man. Jesus' inner motives always matched his outward behavior. And it is only in communion with him through faith that you and I begin to develop this type of righteousness that Jesus is describing. It's through Christ. Every bit of it's through Christ. None of this is your own doing. It is all by grace, but it is still a reality. And that leads us to where we're going to look today. This is our passage, Matthew 6, 1 through 21, because this whole section builds on what Jesus has already been teaching. Here, Jesus is showing us what that type of righteousness looks like in actual practice, what it means to be whole in your worship. And so just to kind of give you an overview, I'm going to give you a big picture view of what Jesus is doing in 6, 1 through 21, and then we're going to look more specifically at it. So verse 1 functions as an introduction to the passage. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So don't just practice your righteousness to be seen by people. Okay, and then Jesus applies it to three areas. Giving in verses 2 through 4 when you give to the needy. Verses 5 and 6, he applies it to prayer. Don't pray like the hypocrites just to be seen by other people. And then in verses 16 through 18, he applies it to fasting. It's not about being seen by other people. And in the very middle of all that, what do we see? The Lord's, or excuse me, the Lord's prayer which Pastor Josh is about to lead us through on Wednesday nights. So I'm like skipping that, but it is central. It's the heartbeat of everything else that's going on around it. We'll see how it relates a little bit later. And then the passage ends with a conclusion where Jesus reiterates what he said in verse 1. So think verse 1 of chapter 6 is kind of the mirror of verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's the big picture, okay? All right, now we're going to narrow, and I want us to see three things, and three things is what we're going to look at here. We're going to see how this passage calls us to check your motives, check your kingdom, and check your rewards. So here's the first one, check your motives. Look at the intro more carefully. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Jesus is talking about the kinds of things that other people see. He says there is a danger. Beware of doing those outward things for the, for the motive that other people would see them before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus repeats this theme several other times. Look at verse 2. When you give... To the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Why are they doing it? Why are they giving? So that they'd be praised, so that other people would say, oh, look how generous he is. 
Look at how much she puts in the offering plate. Jesus says that's not the motive here. He says the same thing in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Why would you look gloomy? Because you haven't been eating, right? So you walk in real weak, and, and Jesus is using a lot of hyperbole here. It's, I think Jesus had a huge sense of humor, by the way. He would have fit in real good in the South. And, and Jesus is, I think you'd be laughing at some of this. He's exaggerating, but he's making a point. He says, for they disfigure their faces, that they're fasting. Why? May be seen by others. Jesus says that if you are doing your righteousness to be seen by other people, you forfeit your reward from God who wants to reward you eternally for your righteousness. So you choose which reward you want. Every time I study this passage, it reminds me of an, a, of an instance that I had with Nikki early on in marriage where I think, I don't remember what I had done, but I had done something in the house. It was just, I think it was like washing the dishes or something. We had like a sink full of dirty dishes, and I washed the dishes, and Nikki came home, and, you know, I'm like, you know, standing there with my chest out, and, and, and Nikki just walks by, and you know, I think she was probably pregnant at that time. I mean, like, she wasn't going to notice what I did. It was like, well, not even a big deal. And I just remember being like, did, did you see what I did for you? And my wife looked at me and said, hmm, I guess there's your reward. And church, I just want you to know that I knew right then that this marriage was going to be special. And I, I tell you that my wife, if you know her, she tells the truth. And she was right. Why did I wash the dishes? Because I wanted her to see it. And I got my reward because I shined a big spotlight on what I had done. And that's Jesus' point, church. Listen to me. If you are doing things for the attention of other people, you are not doing those things for worship of God. And if you're doing them for the attention of other people, then the attention from other people, that is your reward. That praise is your reward. You don't need God's anymore because you weren't doing it for God in the first place. You are forfeiting what God wants to give you, which is so much more than what it is you're after. Isn't that so true for so many things in the Christian life? We are after little tiny trinkets, and God is over there saying, I want to fill you up with blessings. And we live. We live for the little, the little plastic things that can't ever last. And I think it's important that we say at this moment that Jesus is not saying that you can't ever be praised for something you do. Jesus is simply saying, don't ever let that praise be the reason for why you're doing it. I mean, I think it's a good thing when someone does something good to praise them, but, but we in our hearts have to be careful that that never becomes the motive for why we're doing it. Jesus knows how we work. 
Jesus keeps calling them hypocrites. He uses it again and again. He uses it three times. He uses it when he's talking about giving in verse 2. He uses it again in verse 5 when he's talking about prayer. And he uses the word again in verse 16 when he's talking about fasting. This word hypocrite, what does it mean? Because we use it a lot. And what Jesus means when he says it is when there is a disconnect between your outwardly righteous deeds and your inner motivations, your motives, when there's a disconnect, when you are selfishly motivated, but you are putting on a show as if everything you're doing is for God and purely motivated. I think that the kind of takeaway for us, it's really important, what we have to understand is that it is really possible, church, to fool everyone around us, including ourselves. And Jesus gets to the fooling ourselves at the end. And if you flip over probably a page, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says here that it is possible to deceive even yourself, to think to tell yourself the lie that everything you did was for Jesus, but really you didn't know him. It was really for yourself. Here's an easy example. You're, you're here today. You're at church. That's one thing I know about you. <laughs> I may not know anything else. I know that you're a sinner created in the image of God. Your only hope is Jesus. I know that you're here at Ashton Community Church today. But here's the thing. What does it mean to be in church? Most of us would say, it's good to go to church. I would tell people that. I'd say that all the time. It's better to be a church. Go to church. But all of these people in this room who decided to get up on the coldest day of the year, come in here, and all of us are here, and yet our physical presence does not communicate one iota why we decided to come. Think about that. Some of you may be here today just to please a spouse or a parent. Well, my mom wants likes it for me to go, so I'm going to go. That's the only reason why you're here. Some of you are business people. you like, I own a business, and I, it's good to go to church because I make connections for my business there. That's true, by the way. If you're a business person, it's probably really smart. If you want to make money, to go to church and meet people. Some people come just to be seen. Just like the scribes. Hey, I'm here. I'm here. Look at me. I haven't missed. Perfect attendance. Some of us think, well, if I go to church, I might be able to put God in my debt. See, I'm doing something for God. I'm scratching his back. Maybe God will bless me. Look, God, I went to church last week. You see? And then, of course, and this is our prayer, our prayer is that we're here because we genuinely want to worship Jesus because he loves us and saved us. But you know, sometimes our motives are a mixture of those things. And while that last motive is there, sometimes it's kind of quiet. 
And maybe something else is driving us. Maybe, maybe it's just what we do. But here's the thing. God knows the real reasons. And here's the truer thing, or just as true thing. Not only does he know the real reasons, but that is how he gauges us. That is how he judges us. He does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart because he knows our motives. He knows what makes us tick. He knows our thoughts. He knows our desires. He knows why we're doing what we do. Here's the truth, church. All of us have been there. I've tried to make this point so many times already this morning, but I want you to hear me. There is not anybody in this room who can point the finger at anybody else and say, that's you, but that's not me. Because we've all experienced this, haven't we? We've all done things for the wrong reasons. We've all seen that we're superficial sometimes. We've all seen that we're not always authentic. And so my question for you is, People like us who find ourselves in this situation, where do we go? What do we do? Well, we go where Jesus has been pointing us the whole time. We go to Jesus, the one who fulfills all righteousness, church. To the only whole man to the only perfectly righteous one. We go to Christ because Christ is the one who fulfills all righteousness. We go to him and we say, Jesus, would you make me more like you? And we go to Jesus and we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross because that's where it all begins. Because it is on the cross where Jesus died for the sins of the world. It is on the cross where the old man is put to death. It is on the cross where the reign of sin ends. It is on the cross where our selfishness no longer has dominion over us. And it is in the cross that we find resurrection to live a new kind of life where Jesus is our king, where we receive a new kind of heart where we delight in the things of the Lord. It is on the cross and then the resurrection of Jesus where we begin to taste that Jesus is better. He's better. I want to close this section with a few questions for you. If you want to write these down, I think they're very helpful. These are heart check kinds of questions. These are the kinds of questions that help you discern what's really happening in the motives of your heart. Here's the first one. Would I keep doing this if no one else ever noticed it? Something you do. Would you keep doing it if no one else in the world ever noticed it? Number two. Do I only do this when other people are around? Are there elements of your worship to God, supposedly, that you only perform when other people are around? Third, do I get angry when people don't respond correctly to what I do? Do I get angry when I begin to feel like people don't appreciate my efforts? Why is that a key question? Because that question signifies why you're doing it. 
Because if it's only about Christ and it's only about God, then you are living by faith and you know that one day God will reward you. But if you get angry because you're not getting the recognition you think you deserve, then maybe you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And then fourth, does criticism make me want to quit? Does criticism make me want to quit? When I'm criticized, does it make me say, okay, fine, I'm out? Church, everything we do as believers, we, we should be doing for Jesus. There's only one right motive, and it's what Jesus is teaching us to pray in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Pray this, church. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Put that in our bones. May all of our actions be driven by worship. May we do what we do so that the name of God would be hallowed, not so that my name would be hallowed, so that God's kingdom would come, not so that my kingdom would be built, so that God's will would be done, not so that my will would be done. We pray this prayer because, church, this is the life that God has called us to to live because this is the life where we find true flourishing. Second, Check your kingdom. Kingdom is a word that keeps showing up all the way through. I'm not going to go through all the references. I mean, I'll I'll name them in chapters 5, verses 3 and 10, chapter 5, verse 20, chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, uh, verses 9 and 10, chapter 6, verse 33. We keep seeing this word kingdom. And it's really important that we understand what is being said when the Bible talks about kingdom. And the best way I know to describe it is in chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus begins his ministry, we read this, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand now. So what Jesus is saying is, I am here and because I am here, the kingdom is here. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the reign of God, the rule of God, the sovereign power of God. When God comes to reign over all of this rebellious world, that's the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom has come because I have come. I bring the kingdom, Jesus says. Church, we know this. This is what we, when we talk about the future, we talk about heaven, we envision a day where there'll be no more sin and there'll be no more suffering and there'll be no more death and we'll reign with Jesus forever and Jesus, we will live in a new heavens and a new earth and God is going to make all things new. That is our future hope. But the part that we forget sometimes is that the kingdom of God has already come now. Jesus has come. And we experience his reign when we live by faith in him, when we submit our lives, when we repent and put our faith in Jesus, we enter his kingdom and his reign begins to reign over our lives and over our lives collectively as the church. This is why we call the church the outpost of the kingdom. It is supposed to be, the church is supposed to be an earthly model of that eternal kingdom. Here, love is reigning. Here, you can come and get an imperfect taste, but a taste nonetheless of what that kingdom is going to look like. 
The kingdom is the fulfillment of all God's promises. One biblical scholar defines the kingdom with, in this short, easy-to-remember way. He says, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And Jesus says, how you can enter the kingdom through me. But, but, but I want to back away from the theological part of that, and I want to talk practically to you for a moment. Because here's the truth. We, you can talk about kingdom all the time and kingdom this and kingdom that. And you might say, well, what does that matter to me? I live in a democracy. This is America. But here's the truth, and I want you to hear me. Every one of us is pursuing a kingdom. Every single person has a kingdom-shaped vision that you are living for. Every one of us, we have a vision for our future that motivates our actions. That is your kingdom. You have some version of the good life that you've defined and you're living towards it. There's something in your mind that gets you out of bed in the morning that you are striving for. There's some goal in the future. There's some dream. That's the language we like to use in our culture. We talk about dreams, and we talk about goals, and we say, tell me your dreams. Tell me your goals. And it's usually something on this earth. Well, I'm living for retirement. I'm just trying to get into my own house. I'm just trying to get these kids to college. I'm just trying, you know, often we have little kingdoms along the way, right? We get through one kingdom and then we look for another one, something else to drive us. And the point that, that I want to communicate to you is that all of those little kingdoms are not ultimate. And what Jesus is calling us to is to submit the entirety of our lives to his ultimate kingdom. His vision of our future. Because here's the truth, and this is the point that he's making so powerfully in this whole passage. Your life decisions will always be oriented toward whatever it is you believe the good life is. Your life decisions will always be oriented toward your kingdom, toward your goals, toward your dreams, toward your version of the good life. And look with me at the end, at, at verses 19 through 21, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break and steal. That's kingdom language. Treasures on earth. If the earth is your kingdom, understand that all of it's going to it's all going to be stolen. It's all going to rust and deteriorate. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the, here's the money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Memorize this verse, church. It's really short. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's Jesus saying? He's saying your treasure, what you value, 
What you value the most in your life defines who you are. Your heart is who you are as a person. It is the seat of you as a human being. Your heart is where your desires and your thoughts and everything come from. And Jesus says, what you treasure the most ultimately is what defines you as a person. We are what we worship. We are what we love and value the most. Every one of us. That's who you are. What you value the most is who you are at your essence. Maybe you're not convinced. Listen, it's really easy to take inventory of this. This is objectively measurable. Get out your credit card statement or your bank statement. Where does all your money go? Take an inventory of the time you spent, your free time this weekend. How did you spend your free time? How do you spend your weekends? How do you spend your time and your energy and your money? What Jesus is saying is that the things that we value the most, we are always willing to sacrifice for those things. We will pay dearly for the things that we value the most. I hear people say all the time, well, I would do anything for my kids. That's a good, that's a good thing, right? That's a good sentiment. And we're not, we're not bashing that. But when someone says, I would do anything for my kids, what are they saying? They're saying, I value my children above almost anything else in my life. And so what is their life going to probably look like? Well, they're going to probably be driving their kids around. Their, their checkbook's going to be pretty light, right? <coughs> kids are expensive. Trust me. I have five teenagers. I cannot keep them fed. We go out to eat. If they all order what they want, it's $100. Yes. They're expensive. Well, there's tragic examples of this. You've all known people, maybe you yourself have experienced addiction. What happens when addiction, that drug or that drink becomes so powerful that it becomes a God and it begins to have dominion over us and we're willing to pay everything we have to have that. We're willing to give up our family. We're willing to give up our money. We're willing to give up our health and our life until we are completely eat up with our desire for that drug. We will give ourselves to what we value the most So so listen, it's so practical. What do you treasure the most? What do you spend your money on? What do you devote your time and your energy to? You can quantify it. I remember when Joe and I were doing college ministry at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, and we would talk to college guys, and and we would invite them to church, and they were guys who claimed that they were following Jesus, and we'd say, hey, man, you weren't at church. Where were you? And, you know, we wouldn't get them until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon after church was over, and they would say, you know, I just don't have time in my life for church. And I remember thinking, bro, you don't have anything to do in your life right now. Like, all you have is time for church. But here's the thing, and and this is what we began to realize, that their problem wasn't a time management problem. Their problem was a value measurement problem. Their problem was a worship problem. 
Because if you believe that church is valuable to you, if you believe that there's something here that God is calling you to, you will always make time for what you believe is most valuable in your life. That is a truth. It is a universal. You will always make time for what you think is most important. There are an infinite number of things that you could pursue in your life, and you will choose the ones that you think are most valuable. These daily decisions of value ultimately are the decisions that define us as human beings. And church, my goal, and what I'm trying to do for myself first, (laughs) but also for you, what Pastor Joe's trying to do for himself and for you, and what Pastor Josh is trying to do for himself and for you, is to convince us all that Jesus is the most valuable person in the universe. That Jesus is more valuable than anything else. That if everything else gets taken away from me, and yet I still have Jesus, I have enough. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us here. This is what Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, 44, when he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven, which is personified in the king, who is Jesus Christ, is so valuable that it is worth selling everything else in your life in order that you could have just this one thing. Do you believe that? I, I, listen, we say this all the time. We sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Church, do we really believe that's true? Is Jesus really who we treasure most? Because I promise, listen, whatever we're doing in this life, it's pretend if that reality isn't at the center of it all. Jesus is everything. And we say, well, practically, yes, I believe that. But, but listen, I know that this is true. And I think what I'm about to say, listen, I think I'm going to voice what many of us would say in response to this. I know that this is true, but too often I recognize that I get my priorities mixed up in my heart. I know that's true for me. Right? We, we know that Jesus is the greatest treasure, but sometimes I just find my heart wondering and treasuring this more. And so maybe you're, you're thinking that, and you're saying, okay, well, just help me. How do I change? How practically do I get here? And, and listen, I think that there are two clues in Matthew 6, practical clues for us if we struggle with this prioritization, if we struggle to value Jesus more than anything else, there are two practical things that I want to point you to. The first one is the Lord's Prayer, pray it. Jesus says, pray then like this. Church, this prayer needs to be our life. This prayer needs to be our cry. 
Make a habit of praying the Lord's Prayer. Make a habit of believing these clauses, these requests. Make yourself believe this prayer and pray it and make this yours. Because it's in this prayer that everything points to God, our Father in heaven. It's about your name. It's about your kingdom. It's about your will being done, Lord. Everything comes from you, our daily bread, our forgiveness. Lord, it is only in you that we will not be led into temptation. It is only in you that we will be delivered from the evil one. Church, pray the Lord's Prayer. But here's the second practical thing that I see. Verse 21. You see, not only does your treasure reveal your heart, but look at what Jesus is saying. If you look more closely, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want your heart to be about the kingdom, place your treasure in the kingdom. This is so practical. You want to value Jesus? Devote your money to things with Jesus. Devote your time to things with Jesus. Devote your energy to things having to do with Jesus. Devote it all to Jesus, and you will see that Jesus will become a bigger treasure in your life because your heart will follow your treasure. That's the principle. But here's the last thing. Check your rewards. Now, we love rewards, don't we? We love them. Right? We, we dress up like cows as grown adults to get rewards at Chick-fil-A. Successful businesses know that we love rewards, and every successful business has some kind of rewards program. Like, if it's triple stars day at Starbucks, I have to deliver a coffee to this fine lady down here. Because on Triple Stars Day, you get triple the rewards. Never mind that you have to pay money for the rewards. That, that doesn't matter. It's rewards. <laughs> we do it for the rewards. But here's the thing. As much as we love rewards, some of us get really nervous when we start talking about rewards in the context of following Jesus. And yet, Jesus keeps motivating us with rewards. He keeps saying, I want to reward you. It is all over. I don't even have to go back and show it to you. It's in verse 1. It's in verse 2. It's in verse 5. It's in verse 16. It is all over the place. Jesus wants to reward you, and he wants to reward you with eternal rewards. Jesus wants you to be motivated by the accumulation of honor and glory that comes from God in heaven. He wants you you to live for that and you go oh i don't like the sound of that i mean isn't that selfish well listen to me i'm gonna tell you why it's not selfish and the reason why you think it's selfish is because when you pursue rewards on this earth you often pursue rewards at the expense of others right if i get the reward what does that usually mean that means that you're not getting the reward we can't all be rewarded, but you've got to get that economy out of your mind because in the kingdom of heaven, there are no limitations to the reward. In the kingdom of heaven, there is enough reward for every single person 
to be rewarded infinitely by God because the rewards are derived from the glory of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is infinitely glorious. You cannot exhaust the treasure of riches that are in Jesus in heaven. And those are where the rewards come from. God's rewards are limitless. They're guaranteed to last. They will not rust or grow mold or be destroyed. And so Randy Alcorn in his book, Treasure Principle, says this, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can buy everything nice that this world has to offer, but you are still going to die, and those things you bought are going to rot. But you can invest in the eternal kingdom, and you can know that it is the wisest investment in your whole portfolio. That is investment that eternally can never rot. It can never go away. It is kept in heaven for us by a sovereign God and his resurrected son. And here's the reality. We need rewards, church, because following Jesus is not easy. And thank God he meets us where we are and he gives us this built-in motivation to keep going, to keep being faithful to keep pursuing Christ. And this is the truth as we wrap this up. The truth is that everybody is already living for rewards already. You are. That's that good life that we were talking about. You're living for something. What motivates you at work? Why do you do what you do? A tranquil retirement? A legacy? You want to leave a name for yourself? You just want to accumulate as much as you can? Maybe it's just that you want to escape. You're living for, for that future where you can go off and ride off into the sunset into a cabin in the woods and not have to worry about any of these people anymore. Those are the rewards that you're living for. The reason we don't often invest in God's kingdom is that we're more interested in our own version of the good life than in God's. I believe that. And here's the reality. This is the point that we're going to close with, and this is the point I want you to leave here believing. Jesus is calling you to something better. Jesus is calling you to his kingdom. Jesus is calling you to find infinite blessing in him. And it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth giving everything for. Church, let's live for that. Let's pray together.